0: So, grab your Bibles, your devices today. It is the book of Ephesians. We begin our study together as we talk about your identity in Christ and who you are. And so, what I wanted to do this morning as we start this study together, which will take us through our Easter season and right up until summer, is that I wanted to just sort of give you an introduction this morning. And then I wanted to go through this prayer with you today that Wanda read from us from chapter 3. It's a powerful, powerful prayer. So no, we're not skipping everything up to chapter 3. We're going to cover all of that with you. But I wanted to preach that because I think what it does, Paul's prayer for us in chapter 3 encompasses everything that we find in the book of Ephesians. So let me just jump right into our study. So, you're with your devices and with your Bibles or whatever you have with you this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 1 and starting reading with verse 1. And it says this Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. In Christ Jesus. And I underline that part and are faithful in Christ Jesus because I think it is a statement or a brush that we paint this entire book with. And we'll see that in a moment. And he says to them, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So I want to give you some background for a moment because I think that's important. As we say at Hope Fellowship, that context is everything. And so if we don't see this in context, I believe, and how Paul is writing, namely who Paul is writing to, then sometimes you and I, as we go through these studies together, we have a tendency to write ourselves out of the story if it really speaks you know very intently to us and so when we write ourselves out of the story then we see the story is only well we see it only in a sense of a historicity and that not of that of being how relative it is to you and i so i want you i think as paul would want me and all of us in this room to see ourselves in these writings as he writes to the church at ephesus the book of ephesians is known as the queen of the epistles, because it is known as absolutely being the very benchmark of all of Paul's letters. It is perhaps the masterpiece of every letter that he wrote to any church in the New Testament. And you say, well, why, Mark, is it known as that? Because it is six power-packed chapters is what it is. It's six power-packed chapters that teaches us everything that we need to know about who we are in Christ and to how to live that out in a world that is many times hostile to my faith and your faith and the truth about who I am in Christ. So it's extremely power-packed. And so when I look at this, what I realized the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Well, he talks about what God has done for you and I. It is very much a powerful uh, 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 presentation of the gospel. It's very Pauline in his writing because Paul always starts with the gospel. And there's something very important about why Paul does that on our behalf. And when I look at this, I realize he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to people that go to church. He's writing to a group just like you and I sitting here in this building this morning. And then the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians is very practical guidance. In fact, it is known to be some of the most practical guidance that Paul ever gives us in any of his letters. And so what we find in those last three chapters is subject like marriage. So we're going to take a couple of weeks in the month of April when we get to these verses, and we're going to talk about marriage together for two or three weeks. Then we're going to take a week and we're going to talk about parent and children and your relationship together. That should be fun, right? Call all of your kids. Make sure they're here that day, correct? And you can bruise their ribs by elbowing them, correct? Well, you have to take what Paul says to you as well as a parent. He talks about family, workplace relationships. He talks about spiritual warfare in chapter 6, the the, simply armor of God. And so you wonder about the book of Ephesians, and what is it then? Is it a a book of doctrine, or is it a book of Christian living? I would say it's a guide to how to thrive and flourish in a world that can be hostile toward you as being a Christian at times. So let me give you some background as to where this church is located. It's located in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a very impressive and I think perhaps intimidating city as well. In fact, it is located at the very intersection of that of Europe and Asia. It's a a trading port city. It is a city that the Romans have used to simply launch invasions all over the world, the known world at that time. It is a city where all of their fairs, passed through as being a city of great trade. And, and it is a city that's very cosmopolitan and multicultural. In fact, it is known historically that in Ephesus, it contained the largest library in the world at that time. The largest library known. In fact, it was home to some of the most prestigious uh, scholars of that time as well. Inside of the city of Ephesus. There were 50 temples. There were 50 temples. It sort of reminds me kind of like the South, right? That you have first temple here and the people at first temple can't get along. So what do they do? They start second temple, right? Isn't that true? Yeah. And then those people can't get along. So they get together and they start third temple. Well, actually what it is, it's temples to different gods. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, Is or at that time was one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was the largest house of worship on the earth at that moment. And it was the temple of Artemis. So, this is a big deal city, is what it is. It was also a place of great sexual perversion and and immorality because most of the temples as part of their worship liturgy offered prostitution as part of the worship they did so I thought about this for a moment and I thought that you know we hear the phrase whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas have you heard that before have you yeah I think that we are mistaken in thinking that that was something that was just invented during our time. Because I think there had to be a moment that somebody said, whatever happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus, right? Yeah, it had to be. Because it was that kind of town and it was that kind of city that this church is located in. So Ephesus was not a very Christian-friendly environment for the church there. They lived in a very hostile environment. And I think in that kind of environment, it's extremely important for you and I, as it was those at Ephesus, to understand who you are in Christ to have a great working knowledge of your identity and who you are in Christ and how to live that out in a culture that grows more and more intolerant in, in your faith system. And so what Paul does, he starts out with the gospel in the book of Ephesians. He starts out by telling you and I what God has done for us is what he does. And, and again, very Pauline in structure because that's where he always starts. And maybe you're thinking, but Mark, we just finished the book of Galatians, right? Just before Advent, we finished the book of Galatians together. So Galatians is, is just a huge dose of the gospel. So let's get to the practical stuff, right? Let's get down to the real practical stuff. So let's go on from chapter 3 to 4, 5, and 6. And, and so let's get to the practical stuff and let's talk about marriage and then let's talk about anger, but, well, maybe not so much about anger and well, my marriage is what's making me angry, so let's don't talk about marriage either, right? Yes, so let's talk about all the other stuff. about Because we've heard the gospel so many times, and, and we heard that throughout the book of Galatians and then during Advent as well. The gospel is the gospel. We know that. And can I tell you, that's exactly what Paul saw as the problem at Ephesus. It's exactly what he saw as the problem at Ephesus. Can I give you an indicator of what was going on here? And it's from the book of Revelation, chapter two and verse three. And, you know, on a Sunday morning, when you read from either Leviticus or Revelation, you mean business. Right. Isn't that true? Yes. And so I want to share with you this this couple of verses from the book of Revelation, chapter two. And it says, I know you are. Enduring patiently. Now he's writing to the, John is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He starts out referring to the church at Ephesus just like Paul refers to them in the book of Ephesians. Paul calls them faithful, and here John calls them patient and enduring, bearing up for his namesake and not growing weary. But then John says in verse 4, but I have this against you. Said, let me talk frank to you for a moment, right? Let me talk to you from my heart. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first is what he's saying. So what is, excuse me, what is John talking about here? Because Paul says they're faithful. John says they're enduring and patient and they don't grow weary. So what had the Ephesian church forgotten? What had they lost? What had they moved away from? What had they fallen out of love with? And I think that's a huge question for you and I this morning. Individually and corporately, we want to avoid that, don't we? We don't want to go down the same path. And so we're faithful, we're enduring, we're patient, we haven't grown weary. But are you or have you grown cold? Wow. That's a huge question. Have you grown calloused in your faith? Have you grown indifferent and unmoved by God in the gospel? Because you see, this study through the book of Ephesians is more than just information for you and I, but it's absolutely transformational for our life. It's about you and I falling back in love with our first love. Is exactly what it is. It's about that freshness that excitement that res- that excitement that God restores to the gospel story in our life because we don't want to go down the same path that Ephesus went down is what he's saying so this is about restoring us to what we loved before it is And what I've learned in life is if you don't work at that, if you don't work at that, you will lose that. If that's not intentional in your life, if that is not something that you're focused upon, then you will lose love for what you loved before. Yeah. I remember a long time ago, when Reba and I were dating. Okay, it's not that long ago, okay? So don't, you know, just don't go crazy with that statement. But I remember a a time ago that when we were dating... And there was a summer that we were separated. She went home, and I, I stayed at school for the summer. And there was a summer that we were separated. And so we agreed that we would call each other occasionally and talk. Now, way back there in the Stone Age, right, there was this thing called long distance. Does anybody in the room remember long distance calling? Wow, you guys are old. Did you know that, right? Yes, yes. And, and so that that you would place a call. Right. And, and you realize that once you started talking, the clock was running, correct? Yes. And it was costing you money. So we would call each other and we were determined that we would only talk to these increments of time because it costs so much. Right. And so we would call and we would get to talking and we didn't want to hang up. And the frequency of our calls, I think, increased more and more because there was this great love between Reba and I and men that we never ran out of something to talk about. And all of a sudden, the cost somewhat became irrelevant. Irrelevant. And what I've learned after now of being married, now 44, 3, she said 3, I say 4, because I, would, I just want to be married 144 to you, babe. So isn't that nice? That's points. I will be collecting. Yeah, so, okay. You figure that out however you want. So here we go. And... I know. <clears throat> Glad none of my kids are here this morning, right? Yes, yes. And so here here is the thing that what I realized over these years is that if I'm not intentional and conscious about that relationship, then what you find is that you lose elements of that. I don't lose my relationship. No. But there are elements that seem to lessen in that relationship. So I think that perhaps, just perhaps, that some of you find yourselves there this morning. You do. Are you moved by the mystery of the will, of God's will? That's what Paul calls the gospel. Are you moved by the gospel? Maybe for some of you in this room, you need a gospel awakening in your life that you need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Listen, those verses that Wanda read to us a few moments ago, verse 13, just prior to the verse that she started with, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, don't lose heart over suffering. He says, don't lose heart over suffering. And what... Here's the deal, that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He is. He was preaching a sermon in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, and he's talking about the the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's preaching this sermon near the Temple Mount, and his sermon is so powerful by the presence of God that it causes a riot in the city. That's how you know when you've really preached if it causes a riot. Isn't that true? And it causes a riot and they arrest Paul. And Paul... Because he is a Roman citizen, he has the right for an audience with Caesar to be tried and for him to make his case before Caesar. And so because he's a Roman citizen, citizen, he does that. So he's taken to Rome. He's placed under house arrest, put into chains, and he's waiting his opportunity to plead his case before Caesar. And he's suffering there under house arrest because he did something good. Isn't that the worst, right? Sometimes you can deal with suffering because it's like a mess up in your life. But when it's something good that's completely different, I think it's the worst. You see, when I looked at that and I read this prayer, what I realized is that life has a way of draining us of the freshness of our relationship with Christ, doesn't it? It does. It really does. That even in the midst of faithfulness, and that's what... Paul calls the people at Ephesus that they're faithful, that even in the middle of faithfulness or patience, endurance, and doing the right thing, that's how John refers to him in the book of Revelation, that you wake up one morning and you realize that spiritually you're calloused, that spiritually you're unmoved by the gospel anymore, that it becomes, as a great friend of mine said to me this week, it becomes a crisis of faith within your life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a place where you couldn't feel God? Have you ever been at a place in your life when you're disillusioned spiritually, when you've fallen out of love with what you loved before, and that was Christ and the gospel? Have you ever been there? Because I want to tell you with honesty and transparency today, I have been there, and I was there while being a pastor. So don't look at me like you've never done that before because I know that you have. And some of you are there this very moment within your life that there was a moment in my life, even as a pastor, there was a moment in my life where I could not feel God. That I was disillusioned with everything around me spiritually, That my love for God had diminished. I had a relationship with him, but I didn't love him like I loved him before. If you have ever been there or if you find yourself there or if you will ever be there in the future. I covered everybody, didn't I? Isn't that right? Yes. Then Ephesians is for you. And if you're not falling into any of those categories, you may leave after today and wait till we finish Ephesians. No, I like you here. So be here, please. Okay. So, Mark, I'm there. What do I do? Oh, this is where these verses, starting at verse 14, chapter 3, come into play. And here's what Paul says. When you're there in that place in your life... He says, you are to pray, is exactly what he says. You are to pray. Here's what he says in verse 14, Ephesians chapter three. For this reason, remember we just talked about verse 13. When you lose heart, when you fall out of love, what life does to you that causes you to lose heart, even in your spiritual neglect, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, is what he says. And I thought about this, we all want to be close to God. We do. I have I I find very few people who have some kind of spiritual center in their life who come to me and say, "Hey, I really don't want to be close to God." I find very few people who say that we all want to be close to God. I think the question is this. I put it in your notice on the screen. Then what is our primary strategy for feeling close to God? What is our primary strategy for feeling close to God? And, and I, I looked at my own life and I think, well, probably it's like doing stuff for God, right? That's what it is to being faithful, just like the church's Ephesus, doing the right thing, doing the Ephesus thing is what it is. That, that's exactly, that's how my heart is moved sometimes when I do things for people, intervene in their life. I step into the middle of their mess sometimes that, that, yes, it makes me feel close to God. You say, Mark, isn't that the way it works then? Some of you already read through Ephesians. You came across Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. And it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So that's what I do. That's my strategy, right? To feel close to God, I'm going to do a bunch of good things. And in that, that's the way it works for me. But if you read the verses prior to Ephesians 2 and 10 and after, what you find out, oh, no, what reality is those works are a work of grace and those grace are never a a result of our works in our lives. And we live this backward life. But we say, if I can just serve enough, if I can give to God and I can sacrifice, then God embraces me. And Paul says to you and I, in that moment when you feel distant, In that moment in your life when you feel cold and indifferent, you're out of love with God, you can't feel God within your life, here's what Paul says to do. He says that you are to pray, is what he says. But that's so difficult for us. Why? Because prayer feels so passive, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like action, it feels like it's passive, let me do something that will make me feel closer to God. Yet here Paul models prayer for others, for ourselves, for him. Because why? Because prayer is the primary means the Lord uses to move us. I heard one, someone say this one time. They said, our primary work is to ask God to work. And I thought about that. That's really clever, isn't it? that our primary work is to ask God to work. And so what I find is Paul starts his prayer out in verse 15. He's asking the entire Trinity, the heavenly family, to get involved. Is what he's doing. To do what? To stir my heart, to stir your heart once again, so that you and I would grasp the riches of God's glory for us, of his great love for us once again, that we would fall back in love with Christ and the gospel. That we trust in his grace and his power. And Paul says, I bow my knee before him. Why does Paul say that as just being a posture of prayer? Is that what he's talking about? Because if you look at Jewish culture, what we realize is in Jewish culture that most Jewish people, when they would pray, they would always pray standing and they would pray with their hands up like this and this is the way they would pray. And perhaps you've seen Pictures at that of the Wailing Wall and other places in Jerusalem. And that's the position that you see most people in as a prayer position. So Paul throws this out and he says, hey, I bow my knee before him. Why? Because it's a moment of acknowledgement that only God, that only God can move my heart. That only God can do those things in my heart. Only God can move my heart. And it's not the things that I do, even the right things. And that was Paul's message to the church at Ephesus. Well, Mark, I'm just going to feed my mind all this, great, this good stuff, right? I'm going to read great theology books. So I'm going to read all these great books. And I'm going to feed my mind with all these kinds of things. And what that, that's just going to rekindle my heart and my love for God and my love for the gospel. That's going to fix what's going on in my heart right now. And Paul says, no, wait a minute. It's important that you have truth and you fill your mind with truth. But sometimes I think we overcorrect and we neglect feeding our hearts. So how are you feeding your heart? That's a huge question. How are you feeding your heart? So here's what Paul says next to us that you are to pray for a changed heart. Look at what he says in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory you may grant that he may grant you to be Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he says these things to us. He says, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's your heart. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. He says he uses the word heart, one of the most encompassing words that you find throughout all of Scripture. Why? Because the word heart, it, it just covers so many things it is the place in your life that determines your life direction, your behavior, your thoughts, your place of trust and loyalty and service and fear and delight. It's the seat of all of motivation within your life or behavior and everything else in the way you feel. It's the core of who you are. It's what moves us. And what Paul says to you and I today as we start to study through the book of Ephesus is this. That he wants us to be moved deeply in the innermost parts of our life. That this prayer is not for you just to know the gospel. It's far more than that. But that you would feel it. And it would change you. And you would be moved by the glory of the gospel within your life. That Christ may dwell in your hearts is what he says. He's writing to Christians. He's already said they're faithful. He's already said that they endure. Hey, they've got one thing that a lot of us don't have and struggle with. And they're patient. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. True. They're enduring. But the word dwell doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Christ just visits And I think sometimes that's the way we look at it. There's more than that, but it implies of something or someone that takes up permanent residence. And I think when we become a Christian, we say, well, Jesus lives in my heart now. And, And that is correct. Absolutely. But what we find in this text, there's a reference to the impact of that presence in my life. Not just a statement of fact that God lives in me, but it's the impact of his presence within my life. that it moves me, that it fills my being, it transforms my thoughts and my actions, that my nature is different, that I'm changed, not because of what I do, but I'm changed because of what has been done for me through Christ. It's a daily comprehension of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's the freshness that I need in my life. Jonathan Edwards, who is a 17th century revivalist and theologian, preached a powerful sermon. We know one of his sermons, Children in the Hands of an Angry God. But he preached a powerful sermon and he used the metaphor... Of light and heat. I actually had nightmares that this thing would not light. I did. And I actually have two lighters just in case one fails. Because I am a great man of faith, right? Yes, there you go. And he uses this metaphor of Light and heat and how that we need both in our lives. And he says this. He says that light would represent truth. And we know that. That light would represent truth. And we need to fill our minds with truth. And we can all say yes and amen on that one for sure. But then he said also in our life we need heat. We do. We need some, we need passion and we need to be moved by things, feelings in our life. And feelings are okay. So we need passion and strong feelings in our life. And so we need both light and heat. But Jonathan Edwards says, or he presents this question what do you have if you have light without heat? What do you have if you have light without heat? And the answer is you have cold and lifeless doctrine. And then the other question was, what do you have if you have heat without light? And my answer to that one was hot air. Explains a lot of sermons, doesn't it? Going, moving on, right? So, yeah. What if you have if you have light or heat without light? You have hot air. So the thought is that there must be warmth in our hearts that corresponds to the light. That there has to be warmth that corresponds to light. Because one without the other in our lives is dangerous. Man, I sat in this for a while and gave it a lot of thought. I even thought, What does that look like here at Hope Fellowship as a church? What does that look like for me as an individual? And so I asked the question this morning, are you experiencing the love of Jesus in a way that moves you? Are you just focused on the light, the truth, And you have failed to remember the heat. The passion. The feeling. The movement of the Holy Spirit within your life. Paul says if you find yourself in that place, then here's what you should do. He said you should pray. You should pray this prayer. Is what he says. But maybe for some of you it's not just that. You've lost your love, but you replace that with something else in your heart. And what I realize is this, that our heart is like a vault and, and our heart is like a vault. It always has treasure in it. So you're always going to treasure something with inside of you and with your, within your heart. And so Paul says to know and experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So where are you? Are you so much in the area of truth that you have a lot of light? But you failed in the area of heat, of passion, of feeling, and movement in your life. Oh, I think it's a question that you can answer. I think it's a question you've probably already answered during this teaching this morning. Because what I realize and what Paul is teaching us and will teach us throughout the book of Ephesians is that our lives require both. Because if you just have light, you have nothing but cold, lifeless doctrine. And if you just have heat, then you lack the foundation that you need in life. And so Paul is teaching us that you need both. And then he says that you are to pray to be moved by the mystery of the gospel. And I read verse 17 again to you this morning as I tie all this together for us today so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being, and I underline these words rooted and grounded, these metaphors in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I got caught on these two words, rooted and grounded. And the word rooted is definitely an Agarian word. It talks about plants and trees and things like that. And, and, and so it talks about a tree, I think, that is planted deep into the ground and its roots have grown and it's, it's simply attached itself to rocks and stones so it's not moved by heavy winds. And he talks about that of being grounded, and that's an architectural term. He talks about a building with a foundation that, that is sunk very deep into the soil, that's settled and grounded. And what he's saying to you and I is we need these roots, that firm, immovable foundation that's in the love of Christ And it's revealed in the work of the gospel in our life and not the work that we do in this life. And it requires both truth and heat. Light and heat. So Paul says something in the verses I just read that just grabbed my heart he says to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Because I think sometimes when we read these texts that are very prescriptive in nature, that we see them as somewhat being ethereal, that, that it's almost like, well, it's a great thought, it's philosophical, but there's no real meat here. Nothing that I can sink my teeth into. Paul says, wait, stop to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Because he writes about something that I can experience. To not just speculate about the love of God in my life or to it be guesswork or not that it's just emotions or feelings at all, but it's something to know, to experience. to be filled with all the fullness of God. So as God is filled with all his character and all of his nature, so is God's will to fill you and I today to capacity with Jesus. So, Tim Keller, in one of his books, gives an illustration, and I borrow it today for a moment and modify it a bit for us this morning. So, one day you go to your mailbox and you get a letter, and you notice that it's from a a family member. And you were aware that this family member was going to send you some money. That you had inherited some money. But you're thinking, ah, you know, I know this family member and it's not going to be a lot of money. So I take the letter addressed to me and I kind of put it with all of my junk mail somewhere in my house. And it probably ends up in your junk drawer in your kitchen. with all the dominoes coupons that you get and everything else that you get, right? It's all stuck in there. And you forget about it. It's not on your mind. And a day passes, two days pass. A week, a month, months pass. And all of a sudden, one day you think you remember. Oh, wait a minute! There's a letter I never opened. They said I got some money. It can't be a lot of money. And so you go and you dig frantically through your junk drawer, and there it is. You open it up. You pull out a check. And you say, "Mark, you have no idea how I live. It'd been five bucks out of cash that bad boy, right?" Yes. You pull out a check and all of a sudden to your astonishment as your legs get weak and you lose your breath that it's a check for more money than you have ever seen in your entire life. You see, for months you've been rich but you've been living far below what the letter says you are. You see, that's exactly what Paul is teaching us. That only through an encounter with God in prayer do we avoid this mistake within our That we're rich, but I think sometimes we live as paupers. So, how would you be moved if you were that person opening that letter that day? How would you be moved? For all the the Baptists in the room that have never danced, you'd break out in a dance, wouldn't you? Now let's be honest, come on. True, true. For all the Pentecostals, it would just be a Jericho march for you around the house. And if you don't know what that is, come talk to me later on, I'll tell you. But the point is, for you and I this morning. That how many times have you heard the story of the gospel? How many of times have you read books like Galatians and now Ephesians? How many times have you heard those things? But you're not moved by them? It's like getting a letter and putting it away and not realizing actually who you are. But once you sit in that, and once you get in the presence of God in light of that, you are moved greatly. So Mark, what are you asking us to do? I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just telling you what Paul is saying to us. So are you asking us to become emotionally driven? That's not what I'm saying at all. Are you asking us to be driven just by truth? That's not what I'm saying either. Here's what I'm saying to you as we study this book together. That you find a place in your life for both experiences. Both light and heat. And as you are exposed to the truth, that you are moved. Because it is that movement that sinks your roots deep into the foundation of God. So that when you find yourself like Ephesus. In a hostile environment, you can be referred to like Paul refers to them as being faithful. And in a moment when you feel cold, in a moment when you feel lifeless and you can't feel God. What do you do? You pray. go to the gospel and the gospel moves you. It moves you. So for a moment, would you bow your heads with me or close your eyes or whatever posture of prayer that you want to take this morning, whatever it is. And allow me for a moment to pray with you For you. So, Father, in this moment of complete and utter transparency before you, that by faith we open our hearts and our minds, every corner of our life to you today. Knowing that you are a good Father who loves us. That, God, we are open and honest to you about these moments in our life when we feel dry and we feel callous and we feel cold. These moments when you perhaps have so focused on truth that we have failed to balance it with heat. So, God, speak to us in this moment. God, maybe in this moment when we are really struggling to feel you, and we have tried all the things that we know to do, and we've tried all the good things we know to do, and yet it comes back to this moment of intimacy with you and talking with you as our Father and opening our hearts up to the gospel and the great things you have done in our lives. And it moves us. It moves us. So, Lord, don't let us grow cold and don't let us grow calloused may we be moved within the deepest part of our beings by your gospel and that we would know and that we would know the love of God change us father let this journey that we embark on today be a journey of transformation.